Hello everyone, it's time to go down the rabbit hole. Uh, this is your midweek episode with Brandon. Um, yeah, I've been gone for a little bit. Um, Big D, you had him last Wednesday and on Sunday because I was out in Montana, um, the land of free breathing. Um, and now I'm back in Washington where I have to mask everywhere I go. Uh, yay. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was a good weekend. I went and uh, did a couple Spartan races uh, with the 20-pound ruck because, well, I'm stupid. So... Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I do for fun. So I'm back with you. Um, I went through and Barbara once again sent me an email with an, an idea for a show and it was the Bogdanoff Twins. And I don't know if you guys have heard of the Bogdanoff Twins. I, I, I went down this rabbit hole a little bit. Um, and there's some fascinating things at first. You find some really fascinating things, a whole idea that they're, you know, they're psychic and they were able to wipe out an entire studio with their psychic abilities. Um, but if you really watch the video, it looks really weird and kind of faked. Um, and then there's some other things that, you know, apparently they, they control the, the Bitcoin market and the all that stuff. And with a phone call, they can, you know, whoa, where, where did I go? What happened? You turned me down. Yeah, with a with a phone call, they could yeah, make, you know, the sorry, my engineers over there doing weird stuff with the board, but uh, <laughs> um, with a phone call that they could just white, you know, change the price of anything on Bitcoin and all that kind of weird stuff. And there's all sorts of crazy rumors, and it's all fascinating. Um, but what it really comes down to, once you really look into it, um, it's all meme magic. There's a little bit on these guys that before, you know, they really came out with the meme. Uh, there was a couple things back in the early two thousands. Uh, they had gotten a PhD, their PhD um, in France, I believe, and some other scientists came out saying that their their scientific uh, information in the paper was all bogus and all hogwash and horrible, um, and it was just a bunch of garbledy gook. Um, so there's a big, you know, kind of, uh, issue there. They had a TV show in France for a while, um, where they were, you know, did whatever, supposedly they're from Prussian royalty. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things about them, but it, it's nothing really that interesting. Um, except for they started getting surgery, plastic surgery later on in life. And while they were getting plastic surgery, they started looking really, really weird. Um, the only way I can really explain on how they look is I would have to say, um, if you've ever seen the 1980s movie with uh, Eric Stoltz called Mask, with Eric Stoltz and uh, Cher, um, that's kind of what they look like now. They look like Eric Stoltz's character in, in that. Um, there's something just totally wrong with their face from the plastic surgery. So they, had, they, they started looking kind of weird. So people did a bunch of memes about them. Um, and really, if you go down almost every single one of these theories, these conspiracies about them, it's all goes back to those memes, um, the start of the memes. It all goes back to 4chan. It all goes back to different social media sites where someone posted something saying, Hey, I heard this rumor about the Bogdanovs or they started something and it's just all rumors that were started from random posts on different channels um so there's really nothing there reddit 4chan all that there's just random posts where these things start but with nothing to back them up so it's a weird one it's like i said it's meme magic the memes basically came out and then create they created 
people created the theories around the memes. It's actually kind of a, a fascinating thing on how it came about. But um, really, there's not enough substance there to do an entire show. Because um, really, everything I just said just kind of explained it all. So we're, we're four minutes in. So, um, yeah, that's that's the show. Thanks, guys. No, just kidding. Um, so once I'd done all the research on the Bogdanovs um, and realized that the, there was nothing really there, I decided to take a turn and go down a rabbit hole I'd been looking at off and on for a while. And you know me when I do these things, I'm scatterbrained, so I'm all over the place. But part of this one is all over the place because it just fascinates me. Um, and it's something that we've mentioned multiple times. Uh, we mentioned it when we talked about Bill Gates. We mentioned it when we've talked about, you know, right now when we're talking about, you know, the, the transhumanism. Um, it comes in... And come, you know, with so many different stories and so many different things that I've gone down and we mention it so much that I really thought that I should go down the rabbit hole and talk to everyone about eugenics. And it's one of those things that's fascinating to me because when I first started doing all this, I had an idea of what eugenics is. We all have. We've all heard about it. We've all heard of people that were, you know, really into it. You know, Charles Lindbergh was big into it, um, all that kind of stuff. We've all heard about that stuff. But once you start going down the rabbit hole on what eugenics is, and the people that were for eugenics, the people that, you know, supported it, and everything else, it just, it becomes fascinating. Um, and I could see the, and I hate, don't hate me for saying this, I can see the thought process. But it's the evil that comes out of it. Um, it's the evil that has come out of, it's what people do with it. Um, the hardest part with eugenics, and most people know what it is, is that who decides what is a strong gene? Who decides who needs to keep going on? So we're going to go through this, and I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this. Um, but according to history.com, eugenics is a practice or advocacy of improving the human species by selectively mating people with specific desirable hereditary traits. It aims to reduce human suffering by breeding out disease, disabilities, and so-called undesirable characteristics from the human population. Early supporters of eugenics believe people inherited mental illness, criminal tendencies, and even poverty, and that these conditions could be bred out of the gene pool. Now, this is where everything goes bad. So it's one of those things that, you know, when you first look at it, it's, you know, like I said, I could see what they're thinking here. But the breeding out is where things get bad. So, I mean, and this goes way back. Plato talked about he didn't call it eugenics at the time because I hadn't learned really about genes, but he talked about having, you know, the guardians who were the people, you know, the rich and the powerful people breeding more than the less desirables. Um, and, uh, you know, then there was certain cultures way back when um, who played it, um, who, who, who did this. Play the, 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 the soundbite. The Sparta. This is Sparta! And that's one of the big ones that you go back to. And it, even in the movie 300, you see it. You see them where they've got the one guy, the, the I don't know how to describe him better than basically say the, the dis, 
the deformed, the disfigured character, the Spartan that the mother wasn't able to kill. That was their belief. If a Spartan baby was born who wasn't perfect in their minds, who wasn't healthy, who had any disfigurement, they would kill it. They would basically do the, this is Sparta and yeet the fucker off a cliff. I mean, that's what they did. Because that's how they made to be, you had to be, and I say that after I just did a Spartan race this weekend, but (laughs) to be a member of that, uh, a Spartan, you had to be that person. If you were not, if you had any defects, they would literally, they would kill you. They would kill the child. Um, That was one, you know, example of it. There are many examples throughout history of other, you know, civilizations and stuff like that doing this this is stuff you've heard about for years um many civilizations that have done this um there's other things you've got it in um uh even in movies they they've done star trek um they've gone through and uh you know i shall leave you as you left me as you left her marooned for all eternity center of a dead planet buried alive buried alive and we all love yelling con but that's really if you think about it and you go back and you look at it that's what con was con was a genetically engineered group to be the perfect human and his whole group was to be the perfect humans if you go back and watch star trek that was the whole idea of khan they've had a couple other times in star trek new generation there was an episode where they saved a planet that had you know basically that practiced eugenics if a baby if they noticed a baby had an issue in embryo they would off the baby they basically terminate and then basically the whole idea of the episode was it was next generation that Jordy LaForge, who was blind, was the one who saved them all. And it was the whole, you know, see if this was on your planet, I would have been, you know, destroyed at birth and I would have never been here. So and that's kind of the thing that, you know, where you've seen it in popular culture where they've they've talked about eugenics. And it's one of those things that you go through and you see those kind of things where it is it's shown how it could be bad and it can be and it is it's it's horrible don't get any idea that i i i'm anywhere for eugenics i see the idea um but i see where it goes bad also because who decides who decides who should whose gene pool should continue and who should not and that's where the problem is and where a lot of this goes is and and uh, A lot of the things is most people immediately think eugenics, they think the Nazis. And we'll get to the Nazis. But I will tell you right now, before we get to the Nazis and talk about Nazis and eugenics, I'm going to talk about all the people that you would be surprised to find out were actually pro-eugenic. Like I already said, Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, famous eugenist. 
um, a lot of other people. Um, but we'll start off kind of where it started. You know, like I said earlier, um, eugenics literally means good creation. Um, I've seen good creation, well, well creation, good birth, all that kind of stuff. It basically means a good embryo is kind of what it comes down to. So the ancient Greek philosopher Plato may have been the first person to promote the idea, although, like I mentioned earlier, the term eugenics didn't come on the scene until British scholar Sir Francis Galton coined it in 1883 in his book, Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. Um, in one of Plato's best-known literary works, The Republic, he wrote about creating a superior society by procreating high-class people together and discouraging coupling between the lower classes. He also suggested a variety of mating rules to help create an optimal society. For instance, men should, only, men should only have relations with a woman when arranged by their ruler and incestuous relationships between parents and children were forbidden, but not between brother and sister. While Plato's ideas may be considered a form of ancient eugenics, he received little credit from Galton. So that's the whole idea with a lot of this is basically what they're saying is that only and this is this is the idea because there's two different types really of eugenics there's positive and negative. Um Positive eugenics basically says we want all the people who are the smartest, the fastest, the strongest, the richest. We want them fucking. We want them breeding. That's positive eugenics saying we want all the, 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 the strong, the good people to breed. That you should only breed. Only smart people should breed with other smart people. Only tall people should breed with other tall people. Whatever characteristics you think are the good characteristics, which once again comes down to the subject, subjective idea, and we'll get more into where all of a sudden this starts going down a dark, dark, bad, deep, nasty road. Um, but that was a whole idea. And then also not to have the lower classes... To, let the, to have them not breed is the negative. To stop them from breeding. Because if they're breeding, we're just going to keep getting, you know, more and more stupid people. I'm going to rip your balls off so you cannot contaminate the rest of the world. There you go. There, that's exactly kind of the whole idea. And that's where it comes down to. And a lot of people actually believe the movie Idiocracy is actually a pro-eugenics movie. Because there's a lot of people that believe idiocracy is basically pointing out that if we don't stop the stupid people from breeding, that's where we're headed. That we're headed towards idiocracy. Um, and if you haven't seen Idiocracy, it's, it's a very interesting movie. Basically, man from today wakes up, you know, somehow, I don't remember, it's been years and years since I watched it, but that he wakes up in, you know, a thousand years or whatever and everyone is like as dumb as a post. And that's the whole idea with eugenics, that if we don't stop the stupid people from breeding, we're just going to be surrounded by stupid people. Because the idea where a lot of people that are pro-eugenics look at is the way they, they, they come out with, and it's like any statistics, it's how you look at it and which ones you use for your favor. But there's a lot of statistics that they'll point out to that basically say that less intelligent people and poorer people seem to have children younger and more of more of them which continues the cycle of poverty in their brain and people who are richer are smarter and only have a couple children and wait until later in, in life so that there's less where the the rich and the smart are going to be overrun by the dumb because we keep breeding 
And that's what the thought process is for a lot of these. Is the dumb and the poor just keep fucking and making kids. And they're going to overrun the rich because the rich aren't having enough kids. So the whole idea is that eugenists want the rich and the smart to only breed together. Um, and that's where it all comes down to. But here's kind of where the fun starts. To, and I guess fun isn't the right word. But Charles Dalton, we'll go back to him. So in the late 19th century, uh, Galton, whose cousin was Charles Darwin. So, and Darwin honestly did not believe in eugenics. He thought eugenics was a stupid idea. So, in that case, Charles Darwin really did not believe in this. So, Charles Darwin was not a eugenist. So, um, hope to, Galton hoped to better humankind through the propagation of the British elite. His plan never really took hold in his own country, but in America, it was more widely embraced. Ooh, America liked the idea of eugenics. So, and this is going to surprise a lot of people. Eugenics made its first official appearance in American history through marriage laws in 1896. Connecticut made it illegal for people with epilepsy or who were feeble-minded to marry. In 1903, the American Breeders Association was created to study eugenics. The American Breeders Association. And we're not talking cows, we're talking people. It was for the American Breeders Association. So, John Harvey Kellogg of Kellogg Cereal fame organized the Race Betterment Foundation in 1911 and established a pedigree registry. The foundation hosted national conferences on eugenics in 1914, 1915, and 1928. A pedigree registry for people. As the concepts of eugenics took hold, prominent citizens, scientists, and socialists championed the cause and established the Eugenics Record Office. The office tracked families and the genetic traits, claiming most people considered unfit were immigrants, minorities, or poor. The Eugenics Record Office also maintained there was clear evidence that supposed negative family traits were caused by bad genes, not racism, economics, or the social views of the time. Huh. So, all these bad, you know, traits, negative family traits were caused by bad genes. Um, you know... The, the negative traits of uh, uh, being immigrants, minorities, or poor. That was bad genes. So you better get rid of them, right? So this brought in forced sterilizations. So what, And that's where eugenics led to, was forced sterilizations. To basically say, okay, we don't want your, your, the, the unfit, the feeble-minded to breed. So what's the best way to stop them from breeding? Make it so they can't have kids. Sterilize them. So, and before we really get into the forced sterilization, I, I'm going to read you a couple quotes. And I want you to think about these for a minute. Um, and see if you can, you know, maybe guess on who may have said these. So here's one of my favorites. Um, The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among all the thrifty, energetic, and superior stocks, constitute a national and race danger which it is impossible to exaggerate. The unnatural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes. Hmm. The improvement of the British breed is my aim in life. Who do you think might have said that? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, Winston Churchill. Eugenist. 
uh, he was all for it. So, which a lot of people are shocked by. Winston Churchill, really? Um, here's another one. This is a letter in 1913 to um, a Charles Davenport. My dear Mr. Davenport, I am greatly interested in the two memoirs you have sent me. They are very instructive and, from the standpoint of our country, very ominous. You say that those people are not themselves responsible, that it is society that is responsible. I agree with you. If you mean, as I suppose you do, that society has no business to permit degenerates to to reproduce their kind. It is really extraordinary that our people refuse to apply to human beings such elementary knowledge as every successful farmer is obliged to apply to his own stock breeding. Any group of farmers who permitted their best stock not to breed and let all the increase come from the worst stock would be treated as fit inmates for an asylum. Yet we fail to understand that such conduct is rational compared to the conduct of a nation which permits unlimited breeding from the worst stock, physically and morally. While it encourages our connives, connives at the cold selfishness or the twisted sentimentality as a result of which the men and women who ought to marry and if married have large families remain celibates or have no children only have one or two. Someday we realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type. Faithfully yours, Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt compared people to livestock. Any group of farmers who permitted their best stock not to breed and let all the increase come from the worst stock would be treated as fit inmates for an asylum. Theodore Roosevelt basically said that we should not allow our worst stock to breed. Think about that for a minute. That is considered one of our best presidents. Most people consider him an amazing president. And yet he believed in eugenics. He believed that we should not allow, you know, the the worst stock to breed. So that is that is scary. I mean, to think about. Um, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't realize that there is... A lot of these, you know, people in history that you don't, you only know what we're told. And there's certain things that these people believe things that are are insane. I mean, or you would think are insane. Um, but this goes back away. So there's, there's a few things if you go back. Um, one of the, the most famous ones is the, the Potsdam Giants. Um, they're a Prussian infantry regiment. So Prussia, which anybody who doesn't know, what does Prussia become? Oh, Germany. Um, the Prussian infantry regiment, um, who had the, the, the giants, these tall soldiers, um, and the reign of the Prussian king, Frederick Wilhelm I, um, he had a unit was known as Potsdamer Rosengard, or Giant Guard of Potsdam. So, and they were nicknamed the Longfellows. The regiment was founded with the strength of two battalions in 1675 under the command of Prince Frederick of Brandenburg, the later King Frederick I of Prussia. In 1688, the later King Frederick William I became the nominal commander of the regiment. After Frederick William ascended to the throne in 1713, he proceeded to strengthen his military, including hiring 40,000 mercenaries. He had already begun to recruit taller soldiers and needed several hundred more recruits each year. 
As the number of tall soldiers increased, the regiment earned its nickname Potsdam's Giants. The original required heart was six Prussian feet, um, well above average. The king was about five foot three himself. He tried to obtain them by any means, including recruiting them from armies of other countries, the Emperor of Austria, uh, Peter the Great, and even the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire sent him tall soldiers in order to encourage friendly relations. Several soldiers were given by Tsar Peter the first as a gift in return for the famous Amber Room. Pay was high, but not all giants were content, especially if they were forced to be recruited in some attempted desertion or suicide. Frederick tried to pair these men with tall women in order to breed giants. So this is a, a, an example of a long where basically someone figured out, you know, if he, you just breed people with, you know, what traits you want. But once again, this is where it starts to get bad because he's forcibly making these, you know, tall men breed with tall women. Um, which who knows? I mean, you know, maybe they enjoyed it. I mean, usually, you know, guys are, you know, they'll take it, but the women usually not so much. So basically he's forcing these tall men to rape these tall women so that they can have tall babies. Um, so it, it starts to get into a, a very, very bad area in that way. Um, and then you go farther and farther into these, you know, and look at the eugenics in history, like we, you know, we were talking about and you got, um, the forced sterilizations. So, forced sterilizations. Um, eugenics in America took a dark turn in the early 20th century, led by California. Ooh, California. They were leading in something that never happens. Uh, from 1909 to 1979, around 20,000 sterilizations occurred in California state mental institutions under the guise of protecting society from the offspring of people with mental illness. Many sterilizations were forced and performed on minorities. 33 states would eventually allow involuntary sterilization in whomever, whomever lawmakers deemed unworthy to procreate. Our government was deciding who could and could not have children. In 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that forced sterilization of the handicapped does not violate the U.S. Constitution. In the words of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Three generations of imbeciles are enough. In 1942, the ruling was overturned, but not before thousands of people underwent the procedure. In the 1930s, the governor of Puerto Rico, Menendez Ramos, implemented sterilization programs for Puerto Rican women. Ramos claimed the action was needed to battle rampant poverty and economic strife. However, it may have also been a way to prevent the so-called superior Aryan gene pool from becoming tainted with Latino blood. According to the 1976 Government Accountability Office investigation, between 25 and 50% of Native Americans were sterilized between 1970 and 1976. It's thought some sterilizations happened without consent during other surgical procedures, such as an appendectomy. In some cases, health care for living children were denied unless their mothers agreed to sterilization. This is our government. 25 to 50% of Native Americans were sterilized between 1970 and 1975. We didn't do enough to try and eliminate Native Americans. We had to do it even more by making it so they couldn't breed. Um, yeah, this is just... Once you start going down this rabbit hole, and this is history.com. I'm not reading Wikipedia or something like that. This is history.com that's, that's get, I'm getting all this information from. It is horrible to think of some of the stuff that these, these people did. Um, 
like I said, Rome, Athens, Sparta all practice infant infant society. If if the baby was, you know, there was problems with the baby, um, there's all sorts of stuff. The forced sterilization is you can look that up in so many different states, so many different places. It's it's horrible. Um, it's just atrocious. Um, yeah, there's so many, oh, so many horrible cases. Um, there's the, the, the Buck versus Bell, um, case was a 1927, uh, decision in the United States Supreme Court written by Justin Oliver Wendell Holmes, which I kind of mentioned a little bit of him in which court ruled that a state statute permitting compulsory sterilization of the unfit, including the intellectually disabled for the protection health of the state did not violate the due process clause of the 14th amendment to the United States constitution. Despite the changing attitudes in the coming decades regarding sterilization, the Supreme Court has never expressly overturned Buck vs. Bell. It was live, live, blah, It was widely believed to have been slightly weakened by Skinner versus Oklahoma. The Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990 has also guaranteed protection from the federal government to people with disabilities, including the intellectually disabled. So that it's horrible. I mean, the, the, to read some of these things. So um, here's the well, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Here's his entire spiel that he said during this. We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sapped the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned. To prevent our being swamped with incompetence, it is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for the imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vac- vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Basically forced sterilization. Once again, or compulsory, compulsory vaccination. Huh. Interesting word that he uses there. Um, and like I said, you know, he basically makes a comment, three generations of imbeciles are enough so, Carrie Buck was operated upon receiving compulsory tubal ligation. She was later paroled from the institution as a domestic worker to a family in Bland, Virginia. She was an avid reader until her death in 1983. Her daughter, Vivian, has been pronounced feeble-minded after cursory examination. Uh, according to his report, Vivian showed backwardness, thus the three generations of the majority opinion. It is worth noting that the child did very well in school for the two years that she attended. She died of complications from measles in 1932, even be listening on her school's honor roll. In April 1931. So her child actually wasn't that wasn't that feeble minded. Actually was on the honor roll. So yeah. So and that's where you, you start running into these cases of just like I said, insanity. Just insanity. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court decided by a vote of 8 to 1 to uphold the state's right to forcibly sterilize a person considered unfit to procreate. In 1927, the case known as Buck vs. Bell, once again, centered on a young woman named Carrie Buck, whom the state of Virginia had deemed to be feeble-minded. 8 to 1. 8 to 1. They upheld it. The U.S. Supreme Court said, yes, it is fine to make it so that an, uh, if... A feeble-minded. What is their definition of feeble-minded? I mean, what is it? How do we know? How do we know someone's feeble-minded? Is that just someone who has autism? 
Is that saying that we should, everyone, oh, sorry, you, you, anyone who has autism, nope, you, 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 you've de- been deemed feeble-minded, so we're going to make it so you can't have kids. Is that right? I don't think so. No, because I don't think people with autism are feeble-minded. But other people do. Who decides what is feeble-minded? Who decides who can't have kids? Oh, yeah, our government. So, it, it, and I mean, it's just, oh, this one gets me heated. I mean, the more and more, like I said, as I, as I went through all of this, the more I read, the more I'm just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe this stuff happened, happened to our, in our, in our country. We're supposed to be the United States of America. We're supposed to be great. This is all the thing. We did this to our own people. Um, Here's another one. Mississippi appendectomy. Anybody ever heard of that one? The Mississippi appendectomy. So this is one. Some some parts of the South that gave gave rise to a phenomenon known as the Mississippi appendectomy in the 1920s to the 1980s. The Mississippi appendectomy was a medical practice that provided involuntary sterilization to poor black women who were deemed unfit to reproduce. The term itself was coined by Fannie Lou Hammer, who was a civil rights activist that wanted to raise awareness on the issue due to experience of going into the hospital to have a tumor removed, but was instead sterilized. During this time, states such as North Carolina and Mississippi saw almost 8,000 people being sterilized, 85% of whom were women and 40% of whom were women of color. During the 1970s, sterilization became the most rapidly growing form of birth control in the United States, rising from 200,000 cases in 1970 to over 700,000 in 1980. It was a common belief among blacks in the South that black women were were routinely sterilized without their informed consent and for no valid medical reason. Teaching hospitals performed unnecessary hysterectomies on poor black women as practice for their medical residents. This, of course, was passed as state law under the pretense that sterilization was only provided to those with disabilities or those that were deemed to be too promiscuous or feeble-minded to have children. This was the case with Elaine Riddick, a 14-year-old black girl whose social worker decided it was the best to sterilize her due to her falling pregnant after having been raped and assaulted by her neighbor. While this is not an in-depth study of the phenomenon, it certainly provides perspective on the methods. So this is horrible. And I mean, this is stuff that, you know, that happened. You know, and I know that article that I was just reading was very, you know, focused on, uh, on women of color. But... That's where a lot of this went. That was a lot of eugenics because they decided it was, not to sound bad, usually were rich white people that were deciding who who was unfit. And, I mean, the more you go into this, I mean, the more, like I said, that this just drove me nuts. And, I mean, like I said, we mentioned eugenics quite a bit. Um and this was the first time I really got a chance to sit down and really go through it. And it's it's atrocious. Um, it, it hurts my soul, really, to read some of this. Um, and this brings me to someone that we've mentioned before, Margaret Sanger. 
Um, and actually, before I mention Margaret Sanger, there's a few other people I, I would like to say that, you know, were eugenists. Um, there was H.G. Wells was a very, when you know, outspoken eugenist. Helen Keller, of all people, was actually believed in eugenists. Um, that one kind of shocked me because we're talking about a blind deaf girl. So, was thought eugenics was a good thing. Um, I don't know, but she thought it was. Yeah. Helen Keller thought eugenics was a good thing. Um, but it, it's one of those things you go down, and actually, I guess I, before I get to Margaret Sanger, I should probably go into the, the, the person before Margaret Sanger, was our, our good buddy, um, who uh, the, the author of the book, Mein Kampf who referred to American eugenics in his 1934 book, Mein Kampf. Um, and if anyone was wondering who wrote Mein Kampf, um, you obviously have been under a rock somewhere, because Mein Kampf was the book written by Hitler. So Hitler declares non-Aryan races such as Jews and gypsies as inferior. He believed Germans should do everything possible, including genocide, to make sure their gene pool stayed pure. And it starts off, and that's one thing a lot of people don't realize, is they immediately go straight to the genocide and the the concentration camps and the, the, the mass murder. Yes, there was the mass murder. But before the mass murder, it started with sterilization. It started with involuntary sterilization, just like everything else. And they made the, the, the Nazi plan for sterilization was based... Off of California's plan. They got their information from California and followed California's plan. The only thing was the Germans took it a step farther than everyone else. And that's when eugenics became, I mean, and not that I'm going to it became bad in the public eye. Before that, many people were for it. Like I said, I, I read the stuff from Churchill, Roosevelt, that thought eugenics was a good idea. Lindbergh thought eugenics was a good thing. Hitler and the Germans took it a step farther. They started off with just sterilization. And then they moved it to murder. And mass murder. And they murdered thousands of people as we know. And the Holocaust is atrocious. It is horrible. And one day we will go down that rabbit hole. Um, but that rabbit hole is going to take a lot of whiskey. Because uh, that's that's a very bad one. Um, but they, Mangala and everyone else took the idea of eugenics and, and changed it and made it even worse. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's horrible what they did. But thanks to the unspeakable atrocities of Hitler and the Nazis, eugenics lost momentum um, after World War II. Um, although forced sterilization still happened, but as medical technology advanced, a new form of eugenics came on the scene. Modern eugenics, better known as human genetic engineering, changes or removes, removes genes to prevent disease, cure disease, or improve your body in some significant way. The potential health benefits of human gene therapy are staggering since many devastating or life-threatening illnesses could be cured. But modern genetic engineering also comes with a potential cost. As technology advances, people could routinely weed out what they consider undesirable traits in their offspring. Genetic testing already allows parents to identify some diseases in their children in utero, which may cause them to terminate the pregnancy. 
So, and like I said, this is controversial since what exactly constitutes negative traits is open to interpretation. And many people feel that all humans have the right to be born regardless of disease or that the laws of nature shouldn't be tampered with. And these are things that we're talking about, me and Big D right now, with transhumanism. That this is where eugenics starts to cross over into the transhumanism of what, who decides what traits need to be weeded out? Who decides what traits need to be changed? Do I decide that? Do you decide that? Does our government decide that? Who gets to make that decision? Because we've already seen, if we look at the history of eugenics in the United States, what our government decided needed to be weeded out. And it's those that aren't white. Those that don't have the traits that we don't believe. Those that are, you know, a little bit think differently than us. Those that aren't as smart. Those that aren't strong enough. Those that aren't, it's, mm, there's a lot of things once you start going down that road that start to get, get scary. And like I said, the forced sterilizations. California did not stop forced sterilizations in their prisons until 2014. Seven years ago, 2014 was when California stopped forced sterilization of inmates. Think about that. So now we'll go to Margaret Sanger. Like I said, I'll finish off with Margaret Sanger. Um, She is big in a lot of areas. So a lot of people know who she is. She lived from 1879 to 1966. In the early 20th century, at a time when matters surrounding family planning on women's health care were not spoken in public, Margaret Sanger founded the birth control movement and became an outspoken and lifelong advocate for women's reproductive rights. In her late life, Sanger spearheaded the effort that resulted in the modern birth control pill by 1960. Um, Sanger strongly believed that the ability to control family size was crucial to ending the cycle of women's poverty, but it was illegal to distribute birth control information. Working as a visiting nurse, she frequented the homes of poor immigrants, often with large families and wives whose health was impaired by too many pregnancies, miscarriages, or in desperation, botched abortions. Often, too, immigrant wives would ask her to tell them the secret, presuming that educated white women like Sanger knew how to limit family size. Sanger made it her mission to provide women with birth control information and to repeal the federal Comstock law, which prohibited the distribution of seen materials through the mails and regarded birth control information as such. And a lot of people don't realize that. Up in, for a long time, the Comstock law basically made it so that distributing materials about birth control was considered obscene. So, in 1914, Sanger launched her own feminist publication, The Woman Rebel, advocating for birth control. She was charged with violating the Comstock laws and fled to England. Though had friends share a pamphlet, she authored to contraceptive techniques in her absence. She returned a year later to stand trial, but when her five-year-old daughter died unexpectedly, public pressure added to the charges against Sanger being dropped. In 1916, she opened the first birth control clinic in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Barely a week later, she was arrested and spent 30 days in jail. Sanger's arrest garnered much media attention and brought her several affluent supporters. She appealed her conviction, and although she lost, the courts ruled that physicians could prescribe contraceptives to women for medical reasons. A loophole that allowed Sanger to open a clinic in 1923, staffed by female doctors and social workers, which would later become the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So... That's pretty much Sanger. She started the first, you know, 
Planned Parenthood. Uh, Sanger and her husband divorced in 1914. She remarried James Noah Slow. And Noel Todd Kuhn in 1922. While continuing her advocacy work, Sanger launched the Birth Control Review in 1917 and founded the American Birth Control League in 1921 to gain support from social workers, medical professionals, and the public for birth control. In 1929, she formed the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control to lobby Congress for legislation that would permit doctors to prescribe birth control. Despite resistance from doctors in the Catholic Church throughout her activist career, over time, Sanger's efforts led to the legalization and widespread usage of contraceptives in the United States. In 1936, the courts made it legal for doctors to prescribe birth control. In 1971, the Comstock laws finally ended nearly a century after their passage. 1971 is when the Comstock laws were finally ended. So, yeah, think about that. Sanger's steadfast focus on birth control sometimes had unintended consequences. She spent time with the eugenics movement, which sought to breed out undesirable populations by limiting their ability to procreate through birth control and sterilization. Sanger saw the value of birth control science preventing birth defects, and although she disagreed with the racial and class focus of the eugenics movement, her association with it tarnished her reputation. And I don't know if I believe with this. This is on womanshistory.org, so I feel like they're, they're kind of over-glossing her involvement in um, the eugenics movement. But that is one of those things that, you know, it is argued back and forth on whether or not she really, but if you actually go through and they they are, um, yeah. If you look up Margaret Sanger, there's a plenty of information on her and, you know, her involvement in... Uh, eugenics. So, in fact, Planned Parenthood in New York disavowed Margaret Sanger over her over eugenics. Um, yeah, and this is from the New York Times, uh, where they basically talk about Planned Parenthood of Greater New York removed the name of Margaret Sanger, founder of the National Organization, from its Manhattan Health Clinic because of her harmful connections to the eugenics movement. Ms. Sanger, a public health nurse who opened the first birth control clinic in the United States in Brooklyn in 1916, has long been lauded as a feminist icon and reproductive rights pioneer. But her legacy also includes supporting eugenics, a discredited belief in improving the human race through selective breeding, often targeted at poor people, those with disabilities, immigrants, and people of color. So, And that's where the argument comes in. There's a lot of arguments on how much she was really into eugenics because most of Planned Parenthoods are in low-income areas which some people will argue because those are the people that need it more and others will argue that those are also the people that they were trying the eugenics were trying to weed out so if you give them the birth control you give them the the opportunities for abortions you give them all those things and access to them you are limiting how much they can reproduce which is exactly what eugenics is trying to do so that's where the arguments come in with Sanger, and I have found information. If you really want to go down the Sanger rabbit hole, I found information in different places where she has publicly um, shown support for the eugenics. So, um, but then it, it's yeah, she's publicly supported it, but a lot of people say she did it only because of whatever issues. But either way, um, yeah, I, I think she she had a little bit to do with it. Um, 
But who knows? Who knows with her? So, but she did start Planned Parenthood. She did have a link to eugenics, and Planned Parenthood did have a link to eugenics, which leads us, you know, back to our, our good buddy um, Bill, um, who is now in the midst of a divorce because his wife figured out what an evil twat he was. So. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that you find when you really start going down is the eugenics hole. You start seeing a lot of things um, really about minorities and them trying to make the minorities go away. Um, early proponents of the eugenics movement included not only influential white Americans, but also several proponent African-American intellectuals such as W.E.B. Dubois, Thomas White Turner, and many academics at Tuskegee University, Howard University, and Hampton University. However, like many white eugenicists, these black intellectuals believe the, the best African-Americans were as good as the best white Americans. And the talented tenth of all races should mix. Indeed, Dubois believed only fit blacks should procreate to eradicate the race's heritage of moral in- inequity. So even then, it's still... <sighs> yeah, it's still bad. Um, you know, it's still... I, I don't know, I don't like it. I mean, I, I hate all of it. Uh, with support of leaders like Dubois, efforts were made in the early 20th century to control the reproduction of the country's black population. One of the most visible initiatives was Margaret Sanger's 1939 proposal, The Negro Project. That year, Sanger, Florence Rose, her assistant, and Mary Woodward Reinhardt, then Secretary of the New Birth Control Federation of America, drafted a report on birth control and the Negro. In this report, they stated that African Americans were the group with the greatest economic health and social problems, were largely illiterate and still breed carelessly and disastrously, a line taken from W.B. Dubois' article in the June 1932 Birth Control Review. The project often sought after prominent African American leaders to spread knowledge regarding birth control and the perceived positive effects it would have on the African American community, such as poverty and the lack of education. Sanger particularly sought out black ministers from the South to serve as leaders in the project in the hopes of countering any ideas that the project was a strategic attempt to eradicate the black population. However, despite Sanger's best efforts, white medical scientists took control of the initiative and with the Negro Project receiving praise from white leaders and eugenicists, many of Sanger's opponents, both during the creation of the project and years after, saw her work as an attempt to terminate African Americans. So there we go. There's another one where... Depending on how you look at it, could be that she was really trying to help them to get out of poverty because that becomes one of the things. And that was one of the hard parts on that where you look at some of the stuff that she did is you could see both sides of the argument that, yes, the problem that they had, people like to, they like to screw. I mean, who doesn't? And if you don't have access to birth control and other things like that, the, the, the ha- babies happen. And when you're poor, you don't have a lot to do but sit around and screw so you have too many kids. Um, And that's kind of the problem that they ran into. So they were trying to help them not be poor by not having so many kids is one argument. Then the other argument is, like I said earlier, if you can keep them from breeding, then there's less of them. It's a horrible idea, <laughs> all of it. I mean, I get some of it, but I don't. I also see both sides of how it could be interpreted in a bad way and interpreted, you know, in a positive way. Um, it all comes down to what your what your intent, what your intentions are. Uh, a lot of people look at this, and I mean, it's one of those things we keep hearing that we're overpopulated, and uh, Jacques Cousteau. 
You go back and look at quotes from him. He said we needed to start eliminating 350,000 people a day because we were overpopulating the earth and we were destroying it. Jacques Cousteau. Um, there's a lot of famous people that had beliefs that we need to start getting rid of people because um, there's too many. We have too many on the earth um, and we just keep having more. But what's the answer? I mean, is it eugenics? No, I don't think so because, you know, eugenics, there's too many issues with eugenics like I pointed out that there's too many cases of, you know, who decides who gets to live and who doesn't. Um, who decides, you know, when you, you you do a test on your child that, you know, they have some possible genetic issue that there'll be a problem. And who knows if the doctor's right? I'll be honest. Those that have heard Beach, we were told before he was born that his head was disproportionate to his body. And then he came out and the doctor's going, I don't know what ultrasound they were looking at because this doesn't look, there's nothing wrong. This is a healthy baby boy. Um, so who knows if the doctors are even right when they're looking at that fetus or, you know, the baby and they're saying, oh, they have this possible genetic issue. They may not. You don't know until that baby's born. And if that baby's born, does that make it any worse? Does that, who gives the right to say this baby has no right to live because he is not like the rest of us? Because he has a genetic difference. That's part of life. That is part of the circle of life. Everyone who listens to the show knows I'm not a really big religious person, but I am someone who believes in natural selection. I believe in all of that. That there is something, whether it be God, whether it be Mother Nature, whether it be whatever, that decides who should and shouldn't live. And it shouldn't be us. We shouldn't be making those decisions to saying who should breed and who shouldn't. We should not be forcibly sterilizing people because we believe that they have some quality that should not be moved on. They were sterilizing people who were criminals because they thought criminals bred criminals. Is it that they breed the criminals or is it because our society is so broken that we don't let them get out of that cycle of life? Eugenics is horrible. I just went down a little bit of it. I kind of jumped around a little bit because it is. I was getting angry reading some of this stuff, but some of the stuff that happened. Like I said, our leaders, our government, until 2014, California was still sterilizing their prisoners. Not all of them, but they were still sterilizing prisoners until 2014. Look at how many Native Americans were sterilized in the 70s. Look at how many people of color were sterilized for no other reason but because they were a person of color and had kids. Because they didn't think, they, they looked different than us. They weren't, you know, they had different skin color. Or because they weren't as smart as us. Or we didn't deem that they were smart of us. They were feeble-minded. What is feeble-minded? Was it feeble-minded? Uh, were they dumber? Or they just didn't think like we like some, they did? That's what, I come down, that's what it comes down to. Who decides who should be sterilized? That is wrong. Nobody should make that decision. I'm going to leave you on that because I, I could sit here and just 
jump on my pulpit and scream about this one all day because this one hit home once I really started researching it. It was one of those, like I said, I thought I knew a little bit about it. But then once I went down the rabbit hole and figured out how disgusting eugenics really was and is, it's horrible. I can't believe our government did it. It just makes me see more and more of what our government has done to us in the past and makes me wonder more and more, would they do something similar in the future? You never know. On that note, I'm out of here. Have a great evening. I will see you guys or talk to you guys all Sunday. I'll be back in studio with Big D. Thank you for listening. If you want to find us, send us an email at downtherh at protonmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at Mr. That's spelled out M-I-S-T-E-R, Mr. underscore B underscore 666. Thank you all for listening. I'm out.